Welcome to the Senior Story Hour, where we share poems, stories, observations of life, written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. I'm Peter Jay. And I'm Kathy Salzberg. Join us as we share and enjoy today's stories as told by the authors themselves. And now let's meet and greet our authors for today. Kathy Salzberg. William Wiley. Alice Judge. Pat Winiarski. Carol Belcher. Al Larkin. Joe Ewald. Faith Flaherty. A goodly group today, Kathy. Seems that way. As usual, we jump right in. Faith, it's all yours. Thank you. I have to preface mine with an introduction, which I didn't realize until people looked at me and didn't get it. Many years ago, back in the dinosaur days, <laughs> when I was in high school, when a couple were going steady, they would exchange their class rings. You got a class ring when you were a, you bought it when you were a junior, you wore it when you were a senior, and it was a high school class ring. I guess they don't do that today because it's not a big thing to graduate from high school like it was in the dinosaur days. So if you were going steady, you exchanged rings. The boy would give it to his girlfriend. The girlfriend would give it to the boyfriend, and that meant you were going steady. And the girl wearing the boy's ring uh, would be too big for her finger, so she would either make it smaller by wrapping yarn around it or wrapping tape around it, and the boy would wear it around his neck. Okay, now you know what I'm talking about, so you'll have a reference. Here's the story. Every Valentine's Day, I think back to that ill-fated day. Peter gave me his high school ring. He was a junior in high school, and I was only a freshman. I was thrilled to have a junior as a boyfriend, and he was pretty special. I thought he looked like George Pepard in Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> For Christmas, Peter took me to Boston to go ice skating at the Frog Pond, and I thought that was a creative idea. He didn't have a job at the time, but he was looking for one, so I never expected anything for Valentine's Day. I was planning to bake something for him. Boy, he really swept me off my feet when he gave me his high school ring. My family invited him to dinner. We were going to babysit my little sisters. That's about it for the evening. We played Monopoly until the girls' bedtime. I put them to bed. Then we settled down on the couch to eat and watch TV. Peter had already given me a Valentine card, and I thought that was it. But he asked me to go steady. There was no chance I was going to say no. Then he took off his new high school class ring and put it on my finger. I couldn't believe it. This was huge. And here was this shiny class ring on my finger. Me, with a junior's ring. Wait till my friends see me now. <laughs> Since it was too big for me, I wrapped tape around it. The next day, I proudly showed everybody. At that time, that was the proudest day of my life. Everyone oohed and aahed over the ring. They said I was so lucky. <laughs> I walked on air for a couple of days. Nothing lasts forever, right? Poor Peter will never forget that day either. He had to do something very hard for a young man to do and he was humiliated and shamed. It seemed that since he never had the money to buy his ring, his mother gave him the money. Peter's family was hardworking. Both parents worked. His mother worked hard in a paper mill. She gave Peter the money to buy his class ring out of her hard-earned money. 
and when she heard that he gave his ring to me, she threw a fit. She was enraged. She even hit him. She practically foamed at the mouth. She demanded that he get her ring back. She paid for it. It was hers, and he had no right to give it away. Peter was almost crying when he told me, and he looked so whipped. I was embarrassed myself. I didn't know what to say to lessen his humiliation. I just felt terrible because he felt so bad. What a bitch his mother was. Of course I gave him his mother's ring back. I didn't know what else to do. Everyone sympathized with Peter. She even put her ring on and wore it proudly and bragged about what she had done. At first, I planned on taking up a collection to raise the money for the class ring. Then I was going to throw the money in Peter's mother's face and say, here's your frickin' money. But that was just fantasizing. I never did anything but tell everyone how mean Peter's mother was. The whole event affected our relationship, too. I couldn't picture marrying into a family like Peter's. Imagine having a mother-in-law like that. And Peter started acting strange, too. It was like he couldn't look me in the eyes anymore. And we weren't enjoying ourselves like before. It seemed all we did was commiserate over the class ring. His mother had hurt more than a young man's esteem. Eventually, Peter found an after-school job, and I saw less and less of him. Soon he was gone, but not the memory of his humiliation. To this day, I think of his water-filled eyes and shaky voice telling me that his mother was mad that he gave me the ring. His mother had paid for it and wanted it back. I couldn't believe it then, and I still find it hard. How could a mother humiliate a son like that? Yes, she spoke the truth. She paid for it. But that's my point. She was only thinking of herself, not her son. She may have won a ring, but she also lost a son. tragedy. Now, given that that was, as you mentioned, let's call it, I don't know whether it was the Paleozoic or Cretaceous period, (laughs) 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 but uh, back then if you got an engagement ring, since diamonds really hadn't formed yet, it was a ring with a lump of coal on it. (laughs) A little less showy. Joe's up next. Hi, my name is Joe Ewald, and I have four stories that are titled Explain That One. A long time ago in 1980, in my pot-smoking days, I was having a party at my apartment when at the end of it, things started to get out of control. The music suddenly became too loud, and of course, one of the neighbors called the police who arrived and entered our apartment without a search warrant. They were welcomed by a heavy marijuana smoke and empty beer cans scattered about all over the place. They quickly cleared out all the people that were there. Then they started the search for the owners, which I was one. So like a dope, excuse the pun, (laughs) I, I I hid underneath my bed where it wasn't hard for the police to find me. I was quickly searched and was arrested for a roach that was in my pocket. I later had to pay a $100 fine. Fast forward to a month later at another party when the police were called again. 
This time I was outside when I was searched again, and they found a full ounce of pot on me. So instead of arresting me, they emptied the pot out of the bag and on the ground. <laughs> then they grinded it into the soil with their boots and left. So in retrospect, I got arrested for a roach and then was not arrested for a full ounce. How do you explain <laughs> that one? <laughs> okay, story number two. My second unexplainable thing happened about four years ago right here in Franklin at the intersection between West Central Street and Panther Way. I was crossing the street when out of the blue, a bus was careening towards me. It looked like for a second I was a sure goner. Then all of a sudden, just as I was going to get hit, an invisible force pushed me back. I lost my balance and fell to the ground as I ended up underneath the bus. The bus driver and the driver behind him quickly exited and helped me get back on my feet. I assured both of them that I could continue on. In retrospect, how do you explain that one? <laughs> Story number three. Rewinding back to 1952, when my sister died from leukemia at the age of three before I was born, which was in 1956. Anyways, a year or so later after she died, she appeared to my two older brothers who were sleeping in a bunk bed. They both awoke at the same time and saw my sister in a white flowing gown, presenting herself to both of them. They did not realize until years later that they had both had seen the same thing. How do you explain that one? Last but not least, story number four. This past Christmas, I received a package with no postage and no return address. When I opened the package, there was $150 worth of brand new clothes, my size and stuff that I liked. How do you explain that one? So in concluding, on the first story, it's the luck of the draw. It all depends on which cop you get. <laughs> the other three stories, I think, were all done by divine intervention. So... Fascinating. So, shall we go to Al next? Okay. Al it is. I'm Al Larkin, and my story has to do with uh, songs that we remember from the past. The song begins and all of a sudden, the lyrics come to us, and uh, we're always amazed at that. And so this is a, an ode to those people. The lyricist. Whenever I give thanks for the gifts we have, I'm grateful for the music we share. The feelings, thoughts, and words that are expressed in song for meaning, rhythm, mood, or dance. Quite often, we can relate with the writer's expressions as they write words that move within us through our emotions, on hearing them in song. The writer can be either a musician or a singer-songwriter. Some often compose the melody and arrangements as well. They can even take another's lyrics and putting them to song. 
Carol King was among the best with great lyrics, writing for others for the longest time until she began to use her own voice to express her lyrics in her unique style. When they get it the way they want and it's right for us, we get the feeling that reflects their meaning and our mood. The process is sometimes easy for some who keep coming up with hits while others have at it with less success. It may be the melody or the wrong singer with the wrong style. The words and expressions in the lyrics may be wonderful, but not unlike the words we use, it's not just what you sing, but how you sing it. Two people can record the same song, and one of these has the best version because of their sound, style, and timing. It often becomes their signature song. With the right arrangement, tempo, and voice, it may give us visuals that we can bond with in the way the lyrics make us feel. You may know songs like this. A love song that stands out for me is titled One in a Million by Larry Graham. In it, there are lines expressing deep feelings that Larry captures in a way that others couldn't. One of the lines in the song went, I was a lonely man with empty arms to fill. The yearning in that line, many a man or woman could identify with. It's like the title song, Somewhere Out There, Someone Saying a Prayer. Another line in Larry's song speaks of redemption with the expression, and oh, what a revelation. Someone was saying, I love you to me. It was Larry Graham's voice and the feeling he put into it that made it his signature song. Lyricists keep us listening, humming, toe-tapping, or even dancing to the words with music that captures our mood and feelings at the right moment or time that does us good. These writers of lyric words express themes that may narrate our composition of love, joy, hope, or inclinations that matter and move us. For their words and music, I am grateful. The thing is, first and foremost, it begins with a lyricist, who in fact is a writer. Excuse my chutzpah. <laughs> no, I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, well, uh, you're a good singer. <laughs> Thank you. No, it's a great song. And uh, yeah, we, uh, on another program that we do with uh, Frank and with Jim, uh, we talked about song lyrics a while back. Mm. Um, and, you know, what goes into a great song. And certainly lyrics are, I think, a, a big driver. Okay, next okay. up. Carol. Hi. My piece is titled I Quit. <laughs> There is a certain quality built into some of us that makes it nearly impossible to quit anything. This is really a difficult quality to deal with. One finds oneself doing all sorts of tasks and meeting with all sorts of people that one would rather not deal with. Well, as my brother always said to me, no matter what the problem or the question, tough, ain't it? <laughs> so pull up your bootstraps and get on with your life. Like it or not, this is the personality you have. Fortunately or not, as the case may be, 
I have that certain quality. However, there was a time when it seemed people kept piling on the chores until I was racing to keep up. I raced faster until I could see the chores assigned to me were being completed in a slipshod fashion. Mostly, I had taken on too much. I had Sunday school, Girl Scouts, Cub Scouts, taught baton lessons, taught tap dancing, and had women's club, couples club, and Red Cross meetings. I always told myself that if I was going to belong to any group, I was going to take part. Therefore, I was president of women's club, secretary of couples club, and task organizer for the chapter of our Red Cross. I also was married with five kids. My father-in-law lived with us, too. I remember exactly when I lost it, even though it was 1967. It was Easter week, and Sunday school was busy. Late Palm Sunday afternoon, my father-in-law had a stroke. He was hospitalized for three days and sent home. Bless his heart, he was incontinent. He was very embarrassed and apologetic, but the work still needed to be done. On Thursday, the first child got sick. Then another joined him. We had a doctor who made house calls, and since the kids' temps were in the 104-degree range, he came to see them. After checking them over, he said, They have measles. You'll have to bathe them often to cool them down. Then he looked at the other three and told me they had it too. I was very worried and started bathing kids. It seemed nonstop, but I stopped to change sheets quite often. That was a Thursday, and it was school committee night. My husband was a principal and attended the meeting to discuss getting a raise once again. He came home about 10 o'clock and announced he had quit his job. Quit, I say. Since I was in charge of sunrise service and the children's part of church service on Easter, I had to go. I left hubby in charge of my personal hospital and almost felt off the hook for the hours I was gone. But I had to go home. That was the first time I wanted to quit. But of course I couldn't. After the first week, the children were feeling better. The baths stopped, and my father-in-law was feeling strong enough to get himself to the bathroom. I resigned from Sunday school. All that was left to face was my husband, whose employment would end in June. Believe me when I say I really would have liked to shoot him. (laughs) Instead, we traveled all over the state when we had interviews for work. Finally, in July, he was hired in Ashburnham, a lovely little town near Fitchburg. Everyone was well by then, and we moved in August. I had given up all my extra jobs and clubs and felt like we were starting over. All was well until February, when my husband attended a school committee meeting. They explained that the man he had replaced had sued the town 
and would soon be returning to his job. <laughs> My husband would be paid until June. I actually cried when he came home and told me about it. Back to traveling around the state, back to the interviews, back to the nail-biting. He was hired in July, and in August we moved. And would you believe it, all the kids had the mumps. <laughs> had your share of overload. Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> okay, Pat, you're up. Eavesdropping. Lively conversation swirls around me. Focused on learning the art of quilting, I just listen. The women of Ellie's circle engage in a discussion which overflows with concern, compassion, charity. I listen with more intensity. In me, an inner quiet emerges. The true meaning of love thy neighbor permeates this room. Not only are these women crafting quilts as part of the Linus Project for hospitalized children, but they are also extending their kindness and generosity by finding the means to help to alleviate the difficulties faced by many members of the community. Yes, I am absolutely aware of the good and merciful works completed each day by hundreds, if not thousands, of people. But for whatever reason, my eavesdropping proves to be particularly joyous and heartwarming on this particular day. Something is truly affecting me. Perhaps it is my frame of mind as we are gathered for a charitable purpose, or perhaps it is the glistening snow reflecting the dazzling sunshine through the wall of windows, which is creating an atmosphere of warmth and happiness. Whatever the reason, the delight and contentment of being a part of this group envelops me. Very wow. Very nice. Very nice. Very Okay, Alice, you're okay. right. Hi, I'm Alice Judge, and I have written a fiction piece. It's going to be uh, told by me in two parts because it is so long. So, part one of Cheating is Murder. I noticed the two men right away. They somehow didn't belong in the atmosphere of the Ridgeway Country Club in Ridgeway, Massachusetts, where I was waiting for my husband, Roger, to join me for dinner. Roger had insurance business in the town, and I had invited myself along this trip, hoping to rekindle our 15-year marriage. Tonight, I thought I looked especially hot, wearing a pink dress I had bought that afternoon, exposing cleavage Roger always enjoyed. The men had headed straight for my table, where I was enjoying my second Cosmo. Grace Merrill, yes. The two men pulled out their badges simultaneously. You need to come with us, a taller of the two said. He introduced himself as Tom Kaiser and the other Will Nance, both detectives for the Ridgeway Police. Why, I asked, my husband and I have visitors to Ridgeway, combining business with a little downtime. We don't know anybody in town. There must be some kind of mistake. 
By now, diners were staring. I didn't know what to do until a manager at the club came to the table. Gentlemen, is there a problem? The men pulled out their badges again. The manager asked them to keep their voices down. It was futile to stay here. I stood up, placed a $20 bill on my bar bill, and walked toward the exit. Kaiser and Nance followed. Once outside, I tried to shrug out of Nance's grasp. Please don't, I pleaded. I don't even know why you want me to come down to the police station. What is this all about? You guys are going to owe me an apology by the end of the night. Relax, said Nance. You'll be downtown soon, and we can clear this up. Once at the police station, Kaiser led me to the interrogation room. I nodded to their question about coffee, and once Nance brought it to me, the two men sat down. Do you know Sharon Heller? asked Kaiser. He must be the one in charge, I thought. Nance must be Kaiser's go-for. No. Want to try again, asked Kaiser. What do you mean, I asked weakly. Your husband says you know Hella. Roger, is he here? Let me talk to him. And this, whatever it is, can be explained, I said. Isn't Hella your husband's mistress, asked Kaiser. I weighed my options. There were none. After a sip of coffee, which was lousy, by the way, I shrugged. You must already know she's his girlfriend. But why am I here, and why does Roger's infidelity interest the police? My purpose this trip is to save my marriage if I can. I wanted to come on this trip with my husband because I want a reconciliation. Roger told me about Sharon, and he wants to marry her. I looked up at the officers who both had wedding bands on. For the first time in in 15 years, he was happy. Roger said with her the sex was great. My voice quivered and tears fell into my coffee. That might improve the taste, I thought. He told me she liked to do things that I was too brutish to do. I sobbed. I was determined to be more frisky. Kaiser and Nance looked embarrassed at my candor. Didn't you hate Sharon Heller? Nance asked, leaning across the table. I put my head down, sobbing uncontrollably. The officers left the room. I must have dozed because when I raised my head, I could see the world outside was dark and there was a sudden chill. The officers returned shortly. Can I just see Roger, my husband? I asked. Kaiser gave me a look of disbelief. Your husband is the one who put us on to you, lady. He doesn't want to see you. I need to make my phone call now, I said weakly. My sister, Helene, had never liked Roger, but she was wealthy, and I knew she would help me. With my bail, should I be able to get bail? I knew that would be high. Helene was also my best friend and had been my confidant every time Roger strayed. Oh, yes, Sharon hadn't been his first. Sobbing, I told Helene about my being held for the murder of Sharon Heller. I would be arraigned the next morning. I'll be there, honey, said my older sister. Try not to worry. She's got to be kidding. The next day, bail was set at 50000 My sister wrote a check, led me out of the courtroom. I was in shock and just held my head in shame. Snap out of this poor mead boat, Helene shouted. Hold your head high. You haven't done anything wrong. I always knew Roger was a jerk. 
My sister shook her head. I told you. Time and time and time again I snapped, pulling away from her. Is this the way you treat me after I made your bail? Helene could get haughty. Please, let's not argue. I'm sorry. It's just that I have always loved Roger in spite of what you always told me. I was sobbing again. Helene hugged me and apologized. I got us a room at the Somerset. Let's grab a cab, get some lunch. You can take a nap. I'm sure you didn't sleep last night. Then we have to get you a lawyer. I nodded meekly. My sister could be sympathetic, controlling. My best friend, very opinionated, all mixed up in one. But right now, she was holding cards, and I needed someone to help me. I was starved and felt better after Cobb salad. Helene and I stayed on neutral territory, discussing our kids, uh, three of hers and two of mine, after which we walked to the hotel. Our room was on the 10th floor overlooking a lovely garden, which I ignored no matter how much my sister told me to look out and enjoy nature. She was beginning to annoy me. I think I'll take a nap, I said, yawning for effect. I'll start calling lawyers, Helene said. We went our separate ways, I to my room and her looking for a telephone book. Sleep came immediately and I was awakened by the telephone. Should I pick it up? Where was my sister? Helene must have gone out. It kept ringing. I picked it up. Hello, I tried to disguise my voice. It was Roger. Very good. A lot of detail. And part two. Mm, Part two comes up in our next thrill-packed episode here on Senior Story (laughs) Hour in March. Stay tuned for that. Okay, Big Bill, Big Bill, you're up. Okay, this this one's a bit on the romantic side. It it fits in with Valentine's Day. Uh, To be by your side. You are the warmth on a cold winter day. To be by your side, this I hope and pray. Your long, silky black hair, the touch of your fingers. A beautiful kiss, I want it to linger. You are my love, the one I've waited for so long. The love I feel won't ever be gone. You brought sweet love to this old man. A soft, gentle kiss on the touch of your little hand. A new inspiration I think I have found. On this journey of life, who knows where we're bound. The grace of a woman, the beauty you possess. You make me so happy, I have to confess. We talk a few minutes, then kiss for an hour. You are just like a beautiful flower. If you were a flower, you'd be a red rose to be by your side and just overdose. Take in all the love that you give for me. I just give it back for all to see. My words flow out. Deep inside me they come. The dawning of a new day. My heart you have won. A lovely Valentine. Send that along. Yeah, send that one right off to Hallmark. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, royalties, right? (laughs) Okay. This is also um, a bit of a romance in honor of Valentine's Day. It's called Leashes and Lonely Hearts. Just like they do with their human hairstylists, sometimes our clients unload their innermost secrets upon their pet groomer how their brother-in-law just came out of the closet and started borrowing their clothes, how they found out their mate had been surfing the married-but-looking chat room, how their pet is 
their significant other. Mindy Marshall was one of these, a 30-something graphic artist whose bulldog, Harvey, was a frequent customer at my shop, mainly because science has yet to develop a good deodorant for dogs. <laughs> Underarm, underbelly, wrinkly jowls, and funky fanny, Harvey needed right guard for Rover all over, <laughs> and he needed it yesterday. I was crazy about him in spite of his doggy odor, and his owner was a sweet person who had just not found Mr. Right, just Mr. Wrong and a couple of Mr. Right nows. <laughs> Summer was approaching, and Mindy was lonely. Her most recent romance with a computer programmer named Wilbur had ended when she found out the new laptop he was spending so much time with wasn't a computer. Her constant scanning of the personal ads was leading nowhere. I'm gainfully employed and have all my hair and teeth, bragged one budding Romeo. Terrific, she thought, as she slathered cream cheese on her bagel and offered a bite to Harvey. The next ad had looked intriguing. Handsome, successful entrepreneur, mid-40s, still searching for my soulmate, it read. After dialing his number and finding out he drove an ice cream truck and still lived at home with his mother, her interest waned. This one sounded promising. Attractive, professional, great cook, loves rollerblading, skiing, scuba diving, art films, deep conversations, and romantic walks on the beach. Mindy got excited, especially about the beach part, until she read the rest. Children okay, but no pets, please. She wiped Harvey's spittle off her jeans and sighed. <laughs> I told her the grocery store might be a good place to meet a mate, but she said she had tried that. The last time she visited the produce section, the clerk gave her funny looks as she hung around, pinching the melons. The only one who had spoken to her was an elderly widow who informed her, those cantaloupes are overpriced, dear. You should have been here last week when they were on sale. She signed up for a night course to help learn the rules of football, but the instructor politely asked her to leave when her snoring distracted the other class <laughs> participants. <laughs> That's it, she had sniffled as she drove home. If I never get invited to another Super Bowl party, that's fine with me. I never liked buffalo wings anyway. Maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree, she decided. Maybe I should try to meet another dog lover. At least would have one thing in common. Her search began at a dog show, but when she sidled up to a Tweedy type who was showing his borzoi, his snooty attitude rebuffed her. She, th she thought she caught a wink from a poodle handler who was as handsome as a movie star, but soon realized it was intended for the guy standing behind her. <laughs> when she dropped in at the dog obedience school, the most attractive man on the premises was a muscular blonde named Helmut. But somehow she couldn't bring herself to sign Harvey up for his course in Schutzen training. A visit to the vet was no less successful. Harvey got into a, a fight in the waiting room with a good-looking guy's wire fox terrier. I'll pay for that, she said weakly, as the vet technician bandaged the little yipper's ear. Bring your dog in, said the sign at the pet store, pet supply store window. It was full of men without women when she stopped by one Saturday morning. Like a private eye, Mindy followed a neat-looking guy, but thought better of it when she saw his eyes glowing with pleasure as he fondled the spiked collars. 
Before she could pick another prospect, Mindy was asked to leave after Harvey lifted his leg on the cat feather toy display. He has no manners, she told me with a sad smile. I thought we'd better stick to the great outdoors. Armed with a bag of granola, some liver treats, a canteen, and a reluctant Harvey, she hit the trail at a popular state park, eagerly scoping the terrain for suitable suitors. Except for a gaggle of Girl Scouts, the place was deserted. A quarter mile into the hike, Harvey was panting profusely, and Minnie was, Mindy was picking ticks off her socks. After she carried him bodily back to the car, the exhausted pair went home and took a long nap. Her luck was no better when she and Harvey tried participating in field trials. The dummy! The dummy! she screamed as Harvey ignored her command to fetch, lying down to rub himself in the dirt. You really should be ashamed of your attitude, said the woman who was stewarding. Name-calling is not the way to motivate an animal. No wonder your dog doesn't respond. A week later, at the park, Mindy sailed Harvey's frisbee in the direction of a smiling Fabio look-alike. Unfortunately, she got stuck with a sizable dental pill when a sudden gust of wind propelled the disc directly into the man's gleaming porcelain crowns. <laughs> to heck with these trophy types, she thought, as she and Harvey headed for a coffee house where an intense-looking poet was taking the mic for a poetry slam. His imagery was a bit hard to follow, but that's not what made the audience lose interest. This really stinks, shouted one disgusted audience member. Harvey's severe attack of flatulence had cleared the room before the guy began the second stanza. I give up, thought Mindy. I'm going down to the shelter to adopt another dog. At least Harvey will have a pal, and it will be somebody new for me to love. The heart-rending barks of desolate dogs echoed through the cavernous building as Mindy and Harvey entered. Most prospective adoptees looked too large and rambunctious for her, but in a crate far in the back, Mindy spotted a little terrier cross with the saddest eyes she had ever seen. She knelt before its wire enclosure and spoke gently as the adorable mongrel nuzzled her hand. Harvey whimpered approvingly and stuck his tongue through the bars of the cage. At that moment, a long-haired man in a worn leather jacket walked up, accompanied by a shelter worker. I want this one, he said, pointing to the Benji clone. We just got her yesterday, said the worker. We haven't even had time to give her a name. But I was going to take her, protested Mindy as the attendant opened the gate. The man took off his bandana to tie it lovingly around the dog's neck. Maybe we should let the dog decide, said the puzzled worker. Okay, little miss, no name. Which one of these folks do you want to take you home? The mutt whined and flopped down on the cement, resting her face on her shaggy paws. Obviously, she can't decide, laughed the man. Let's take her out for a walk. Maybe then she can make up her mind. As the sun went down over the hills behind the shelter, Mindy and her new friend Mike were still sitting on a bench, smiling and chatting away as Harvey and his new pal romped in the grass. The little dog liked both Mindy and Mike well enough, but the object of her affection was clearly the barrel-chested bulldog. These days on any given Sunday, 
You'll find Mindy and Mike walking on the beach or playing in the park. If they're not tossing a tennis ball, they'll be holding hands, an obviously happy couple with their two dogs, a chubby bulldog named Harvey and a shaggy little girl who finally got a name. Mindy was beaming when she told me their choice. It had to be kismet. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. A love story with dogs. Yes, <laughs> a lot of humor. Only you could do that. Yeah. Very funny. I still think you could be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> yes, easy. Yeah. Okay. Next up, I went into the archives and found a piece uh, I wrote a couple of years ago, and it was in response to a request. Someone asked me to write a nice piece about someone else, and I said, "Okay, let me think about it." Um, And that's when when I went off the deep end. (laughs) I will set the scene. Uh, Whenever we do a movie, there's always a a set of brackets at the beginning of every scene. It says exterior day, interior night, whatever. So this is exterior night, deep jungle, monsoon season. Cold, wet, whatever happened to warm and dry. Stuck deep. In the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, nowhere, our struggling fire fought valiantly against the pelting rains until it flickered the lights. Now, fully alone in the depths of a darkness made for nocturnal predators with big eyes, we were enveloped by jungle night noises. Folks back home in 02038 know this as freaking wicked dark. Even the moon and stars left town. A brief skirmish of rustling from the bad side of the underbrush, a horrifically unholy screech. More like a half screech, cut off abruptly by a final death grab at the neck. Something big out there just became lunch for something bigger. Were we next on the menu? Stay, go, freeze, move, so this is it. Entombed in life's last fear, we will not know tomorrow. Above the encroaching night noises, a shift to an oddly mechanical overtone. Chopper blades. Then, a tower of light shafted through the night rains from on high. We squinted upward. A commanding, megaphone-powered woman's voice owned the sky. We got you. Sit tight. Three silhouettes rappelled down through the searchlight from the chopper parked above. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Sylvester Sly Stallone, and Kathy Glazer Salzburg. Sliding down, they dusted our perimeter with rapid machine fire, style points there. Then, prowling noises all scrambled, suddenly gone. Salzburg kept a crisp operation. Sly and Rock knew the drill and got right to work, pushing the perimeter back with RPGs. She moved in slow motion, a ballet of muzzle flashes and spent shells flying from her AK-47s. Camo paint running down her face against the driving reins. This was Kathy's day at the beach. Contact is green. Repeat, green. Drop baskets now. We ride home in less than two minutes. Clock is go. And I got dry cleaning to pick up people. Blazer turned to us in a sanguine smile that knows, my work here is done. Her voice downshifted from Spec Ops Commando to a softer hospitality mode. Welcome aboard, Blazer Air Folks. 
Mai Tais are chilling up top. Hoist them up! Once on the chopper, I noted the L.L. Bean camo hunting doilies. Kathy's eye for detail, a homey touch. Very Martha. It's a good thing. And then I woke up. <laughs> they say that dreams help us find understanding. I suppose there's some truth there. Bringing that something extra to our day-to-day tasks can make us all action heroes. Wow. I never thought I'd be playing that role. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That was fun. Do you have a story to tell? We would love to hear it. If you'd like to join our writers group, just call the Senior Center, 520-4945. For today's writers, Kathy Salzberg, William Wiley, Alice Judge, Pat Winiarski, Carol Belcher, Al Lockham, Joe Ewald, Faith Flaherty. Thanks for being with us here on Senior Story Hour. I'm Peter J. Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaningful experiences of life become a little larger when you share them, when you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR.